who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but that the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about the righteousness, sorry, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Thanks, Mel. Uh, last week here at church, we sang that famous song, Amazing Grace. Uh, you might remember it. It was written by John Newton, and perhaps, perhaps you've heard his story before. Before he wrote hymns, before he became a famous preacher in 1700s England, John Newton had a, a checkered past. Uh, I read someone who described him as a reckless drinker in his youth. Uh, he tried to desert from the Navy. And then he ended up joining a slave ship. He became a slave trader. He sailed voyages from Africa to the Americas, transporting men and women to be slaves. If there was ever a man opposed to, to God and his good purposes, surely he was it. It took a storm and a life-threatening illness for Newton to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness for all the evil that he'd done. And yet even after that, he sailed three more slave voyages. Sort of beggar's belief. John Newton was not a good guy. And yet bizarrely, God had mercy on him. To the point that he could write this great song of God's forgiveness, Amazing Grace. Contrast him with my friend Lisa. Lisa grew up going to church and doing the right things. She's worked on humanitarian projects in developing countries. She's a loving and compassionate person. 
And last time I spoke to her, she told me why she's no longer part of a church. She said that the church isn't diverse enough and it's not inclusive enough. She doesn't like the way we've treated the LGBT community and she's out. She wants to do what's right. She wants to be inclusive and loving and so she's abandoned her Christian community and seemingly, as far as I can tell, her her faith in Christ as well. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at God's freedom to show mercy, to forgive people and include us in his people, not because of anything we've done, but because of his free choice. So how is it that someone like John Newton becomes a Christian and finds God's forgiveness? But my friend Lisa is seemingly lost from God's people. I'm sure you can think of other examples. There are many good, honest, sincere people who are not Christians. And there are plenty of scumbags and scoundrels who found mercy and grace and forgiveness and a fresh start in Christ. Just look around you. This question is like a a modern equivalent to the question that drives our passage in Romans today. Can you see the connections here? Romans 9, 30 to 31 says, I think we've, we've got this on the screen, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. How come Gentiles, rank pagans who have no respect for the true God, have obtained righteousness? And just remember here, Paul's not saying that they've obtained moral perfection. That's not what he means here by righteousness. Uh, He's talked about righteousness earlier in Romans, and by it he means a right standing before God. Being righteous doesn't mean that you never do anything wrong. But it is God saying, I'm not going to hold that against you. I will treat you as innocent because you trust Christ and he's taken your sin to the cross and he's given you his righteousness instead. To be righteous here means to be declared innocent by God both now and forever. And in Paul's day, more Gentiles were trusting Christ and not so many Jews. So how is it that the Gentiles are obtaining righteousness from God when they weren't even really seeking it, but Jews who were striving to keep the law and live righteous lives before God have not obtained it? If ever there was a a plot twist in God's salvation story, this is it. The, The gospel twist has upended the expectations of who is righteous and who is not. Now, Paul's question still stands today about Jews and Gentiles. When I was at high school on my way home after school, I used to pass a house with a big banner out the front. It said, Moshiach is coming. The Messiah is coming. Right? There are many Jews here in Melbourne and other parts of the world. They, they live under the law and they're still waiting for the Messiah because they haven't recognised Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, there are lots of Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles are simply non-Jews, people of the other nations like like me and, and lots of you. 
There are many Gentiles who have recognized Christ, not because we're any better than these Jews, but simply because of God's mercy. So this is still a live question, both with Jews and Gentiles, but also more generally when we think about good people who seek to do what is right but don't trust Christ. Why are rebellious Gentiles and ratbags getting saved, but devout Jews and upstanding moral citizens are not? It's illogical. Surely good people are closer to the kingdom of God. And it's scandalous. How can God accept a colonial oppressor like John Newton? Now, my dad's a geologist. He made his, he's made his living studying rocks. Uh, once upon a time, I wondered if my career might head in a similar direction. And so he'd be very happy to know that uh, today we're going to be studying a rock. <laughs> okay, maybe it's not too late for me to become a geologist. We need to do some geology and study the rock to find out what has gone wrong for the Jews. Look at the end of verse uh, 32b uh, into 33. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This is a quote from the prophet Isaiah who says that God's Messiah will be like a, a rock, a stone. And he'll be like a stone in two different ways. Firstly, stones are great for a foundation. They're, they're solid, immovable, strong. If you want to build a building that's going to last, then choose a good, solid stone for the foundation. Jesus is like a solid cornerstone for the foundation of God's people. But at the same time, a stone can make you trip over because it's solid, it's immovable. If you don't think about where you're going, you might end up tripping over. And that's exactly what's happening with Christ. God has laid the foundation stone of his new people, but these Jews have tripped up. It's the trap of being a good person. The trap of being a good person. Look at how good the Jews are. Look at their efforts to be righteous. They pursue the law as the way of righteousness. They are running hard with every fibre of their being. They're zealous for God. They're passionate. But there's a problem. Because they're running blind. They're zealous for God, but without knowledge, it says. And so instead of pursuing God's righteousness, they're pursuing their own. They think they're on God's path towards righteousness, but it's like they're running, running blind and they've taken a wrong turn. And so they haven't reached their goal and now they've tripped and fallen flat on their face. All because they're zealous without knowledge. They pursued righteousness as if it were by works, in verse 32. As if by doing all the right things, they could establish their own righteousness. And aren't there so many people doing this today? Zealous, passionate people who care deeply about injustice and oppression or perhaps about morality and righteousness. Either way, they pursue these causes. And while I'm sure it's well motivated, it easily becomes uh, a way to establish our own righteousness. 
something to hold up as evidence that we're good people. It might be that we critique the woke warriors and uphold the Christian foundations of our culture, and so that makes us good people. Or it might be that we're allies to the victims of systemic oppression, and that's evidence that we're good people. Do you remember when the Black Lives Matter protests erupted last year? It's about June. I'm sitting there and my social media feed is full of posts about it. Anger and outrage and support. Accusations of cultural Marxism on the one hand and racism and complicity on the other. And as I'm reading, I feel this pressure inside me growing. I need to post about this. So I ask myself, why? Why am I feeling such, such angst, such pressure about this? I think about other actions that would be more effective, like writing a letter to my local member about the incarceration of Aboriginal Australians. But the pressure keeps growing, and then I realise where this pressure is coming from. It's not really about the suffering of others, though that's part of it. No, it's because I don't want to be accused of not caring. I don't want to be put to shame for not speaking up. I want to post so that others will see I care about injustice, I'm compassionate, I'm a good person. I wanted to establish my own righteousness. I'm not saying that's what was going on for everyone else and uh, let me commend you if you're taking steps to uh, promote racial equality. But that was the wrestle in my heart. I wanted to establish my own righteousness. It's such an easy trap to fall into. The trap of being a good person and establishing our own righteousness. But it's a zeal without knowledge. It's a trap and and a stumbling stone and a dead end. Because we can't even keep our own laws, let alone God's laws. We grieve over colonial oppression, but we still live and work and play on stolen land. We lament the destruction of our planet, yet we light our houses and use services powered by coal. It's true of us, and it was true of the Jews. Paul made the point back in chapter 2, even devout Jews weren't righteous under the law. But friends... Paul is not standing in judgment over them here. Have a look at verse 1. He says, chapter 10, verse 1, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He loves them. He longs for his people, his tribe, to be saved. And because of his love and because of what he knows of God's free salvation, he prays for them. Do we share his passion? Do we stand in judgment over others? Or do we long for their welfare and pray for their salvation? Do our prayers reflect a genuine love for others and a deep desire for them to know God's saving grace? You can pray on your own, but uh, how much better to do it with others in in a small group prayer triplet like we've been doing at St. Jude's Prayer tomorrow night, 
at our morning prayer meetings online each weekday. Let's be a church that prays earnestly and regularly for God's salvation for our people, for our tribe, for the people we know and love. Because we don't want them to stumble into the trap. Because establishing our own righteousness is a trap. It's the trap of being a good person. It's a trap because we can't achieve it and because it distracts us from God's better solution. Because God has a better solution for our need to be good. Often Christians are critiqued for not keeping the Ten Commandments. But contrary to popular opinion, God hasn't given us laws so that we can establish our own righteousness. He didn't give the Jews the Ten Commandments so that they could become good people. Here's what I mean. When they were slaves in Egypt, you remember back in Exodus, he didn't give them the law and say, if you can keep it, then I'll save you. Right? Now he saved them first. He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. He made them his people and then he said, here's the law, here's how to live as my people. It's the same with the gospel of Christ. You can see in verse 4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The law is not so that we can become righteous on our own. The law points to Christ. It leads us to Christ. And Christ is the the climax and the fulfillment of the law. He's the great law keeper. He's ticked all the boxes. And what does that mean for us? It means there's righteousness for everyone who believes. You can be righteous before God, declared innocent and not guilty both now and forever. But it's not righteousness for everyone who does good. It's not righteousness for everyone who stays out of jail. It's righteousness for everyone who believes. God's solution to our problem is not to ask us to work harder or work smarter and do better. He's not asking us to keep this law. Rather, in verse 6 and verse 7, which I think we've got on the screen... But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to raise Christ up from the dead. In other words, friends, you don't need to climb up to heaven yourself because Christ has already come down for us from heaven. You don't need to go through death because Christ has already died and been raised for you. You don't need to go to the ends of the earth. You don't need to strive and to run to achieve God's righteousness because Christ has already done what is required. And if you trust him, it's yours. This means if you're a Christian, your good deeds are not the proof of your good standing with God. You can't look at your life and say, look at all the good things I do, as though that makes you good in God's sight. Our security doesn't come from what we do. It comes only from what Christ did. He lived the perfect life. He kept the law so we don't have to. 
He went through death. He offered the one true sacrifice for sin so we don't have to. And he rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death so we don't have to. He is righteous and we are too if we trust in him. God's solution to our problem is not for us to work harder, but for us to receive his righteousness by trusting in Christ. As verse 8 says, The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. So what does it look like to trust Jesus? What does it look like to trust Christ? If Christ has done everything for us to be righteous, how do we receive that? What does it mean to to believe in him, to have faith in him? Remember, these are all very similar words, believing in him, trusting in him, having faith in him. Is this believing, is it like believing in a scientific theory, an intellectual belief based on evidence and arguments? Or is it more like uh, my allegiance to the St Kilda Football Club? I'm a St Kilda fan, but not because of evidence or arguments, let me assure you. It's, it's personal. It's an emotional allegiance that I have. Well, what does it say in verse 9? If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can you see here how it's both internal and external? Right? It's both personal. You believe in your heart. It's this deeply held conviction. It's your your core commitment, it's where your soul rests, where your heart rests, and it's public. You declare with your mouth. It's not simply a private faith. And these are not two separate things. Rather, it's about having integrity, about there being a consistency, declaring openly what is in your heart. So there's a consistency between what you uh, own publicly and the deep conviction of your heart. And then finally, there's a specific content to faith. This faith that receives God's righteousness is not a vague trust in a higher power or a a loose sense of the spiritual. It's the belief here that God raised Christ from the dead. He lived, he died, and he rose, and therefore he is the Lord the one supreme authority for you, for me, for our community, for our city, for our world. This is faith in Christ. So friends, are you a good person? Are you someone who always strives to do what's right? Don't build your own righteousness. Submit to God's gift of righteousness by trusting in Christ. Don't do it on your own. Or are you a rebel, a John Newton type who likes to go your own way? This grace is there for you too. For as verse 12 says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There is no difference. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. It's the great leveller. Maybe today is the day for you to call on the Lord. Maybe you've been 
coming to church, you've been involved for a long time, maybe we'd all assume you already trust Jesus because of the good things we see you do. That's okay. But if you're building your own righteousness, it's a trap. It's a dead end. Don't do it. It's time to give that up and to trust Jesus. He won't put you to shame. He won't expose you or make you feel bad for it. He'll give you his righteousness and you won't need to prove yourself anymore. I encourage you to take that step today. If God is convicting your heart that Christ died and rose for you, then declare it with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Tell someone you trust that Jesus is Lord. And once we've taken that step, whether it's today or whether it was a long time ago, rest easy. Rest easy. Rest easy in God's righteousness, not because your life is perfect or you've got it all sorted. Rest easy because Christ is perfect and he's got you sorted. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's you, that's me, that's Jews, that's Gentiles, that's John Newton, the slave trader, and Lisa, the humanitarian. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let's pray. Our loving God, we praise you and we thank you that you give righteousness so freely. That because of Christ's work for us on the cross and rising to new life, we can be declared righteous in front of you. God, please protect us from seeking to establish our own righteousness. Help us not to invest our efforts in building our own sense of being good, but help us to lay that down, to trust Christ and to rest easy in the righteousness that you give. And Father, we pray for our colleagues and friends, our family members, our neighbours, that they might know this gift of righteousness as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we're about to do just that. Rest easy in God's righteousness as we sing together. It is well. If you're part of Second Breakfast, now's your, your moment to head out as well.
that we can sing that uh, with the peace in our hearts, um, being able to declare that it is well with our souls. Um, and 1 John 1 verse 8 reminds